Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number four, Leviticus chapter two. In Leviticus chapter one, we looked at that sacrificial ritual called in Hebrew the Olah. And it's what we typically translate and see translated in our Bibles as the burnt offering. And we saw that this offering concerned the burning up of animals, from bulls to sheep, all the way down to birds. And this, it was, this type of burning was to be complete, to where things were burned up to ashes, all of it, to where nothing remained. Now, in chapter 2, tonight, we're going to, or rather, uh, uh, I apologize. In chapter 2, tonight, we're going to get a second type of offering. It's going to be another kind of burnt offering um, in the sense that it's burned up on on the great altar. But this sacrifice is not an offering of animals. It's not an offering of blood. Okay, It's an offering of plant life. Now, specifically, it's grain. And even more specifically, it's to be the semolina, which is the best part of the grain. Now, we're going to be a little more technical than usual in our studies over the next several lessons as we learn about the various sacrifices. You know, Leviticus isn't just for eggheads. All right, and for rabbis. Um, the various kinds of sacrifices we're going to learn about have lots of different purposes. Because sin and atonement aren't as simple and neat as it's often made out to be. You know, it's a great travesty that the church has been much too eager to dumb everything down All right, for the layman. Um, and it's it's from that unnecessary dumbing down process where we get these sorts of simplistic thoughts that a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. Right. And that God doesn't classify them or grade them, so to speak. That essentially stealing a candy bar isn't much different than armed robbery. And armed robbery isn't much different than murder. It's all wrong. By the time we're done with Leviticus, though, the awful and the multi-layered and the multifaceted nature of sin and redemption is going to be much more clear to you. And it's going to require, though, a sacrifice from you of giving your best time and attention to this. Because if you doze off a little bit, it'll pass you by. And you're going to miss the very deep spiritual significance of it all. So open your Bibles now to Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. Anyone who brings a grain offering to Adonai is to make his offering a fine flour. He is to pour olive oil on it and put frankincense on it. He is to bring it to the sons of Aaron the priest. The Kohen, the priest, to take a handful of fine flour from it, 
together with its olive oil and all of its frankincense, and make this reminder portion go up in smoke on the altar as an offering made by fire, a fragrant aroma for Adonai. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is an especially holy part of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. When you bring a grain offering which has been baked in the oven, it's to consist of either unleavened cakes made of fine flour mixed with olive oil or matzah spread with olive oil. If your offering is a grain offering cooked on a griddle, it is to consist of unleavened fine flour mixed with olive oil. You're to break it in pieces and pour olive oil on it. It's a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pot, it's to consist of fine flour with olive oil. You're to bring the grain offering prepared in any of these ways to Adonai. It's to be presented to the Kohen, and he's to bring it to the altar. And the Kohen, the priest, is to remove the reminder portion of the grain offering and make it go up in smoke on the altar as an offering made by fire, a fragrant aroma for Adonai. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is an especially holy part of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. Now, no grain offering that you bring to Adonai is to be made with leaven. Because you're not to cause any leaven or honey to go up in smoke as an offering made by fire to Adonai. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring these to Adonai, but they're not to be brought up onto the altar to make a fragrant aroma. You're to season every grain offering of yours with salt. Don't omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God, but offer salt with all of your offerings. If you bring a grain, if you bring a grain offering of first fruits to Adonai, you're to bring as the grain offering from your first fruits kernels of grain from fresh ears, dry roasted with fire. Put olive oil on it. Lay frankincense on it. It's a grain offering. The priest is to cause the remainder portion of it, its grits and olive oil with all of its frankincense, to go up in smoke. It's an offering made by fire for Adonai. I mentioned last week that the olah, the burnt offering of an animal, was often done in combination with uh, other types of offerings. In fact, the daily burnt offering at the temple was, as far as records can tell us, always followed with the sacrificial offering that we're about to study, right? the grain offering. They were almost always done as a pair. Now, just as the Olah is the specific Hebrew name for the bird offering of an animal, as described in chapter 1 of Leviticus, the sacrificial offering in chapter 2 is in the original called Mincha. Mincha. Alright. M-I-N-C-H-A-H. Now often Bibles will translate this type of offering into the word meal. Meal offering. Alright. And that's more or less correct, except that in our 21st century world, meal to us means breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Let's sit down and have a meal. Well, not that long ago, the word meal most often referred to ground grain, specifically like cornmeal. That's the context here. When it says meal, that's what it's talking about. The meal of the grain. Not a a dinner meal or a breakfast meal. 
Now, the king, uh, just to confuse things a little bit more, unfortunately, some Bible translations have even, instead of using the word meal, used the word meat. Right? Meat offering to describe this offering. The King James Version does that. And no one is quite sure why it's done that way. Right? That is, the King James Version and a few translations based on the King James Version call the grain offering the meat offering. Right? Even though it's specifically an offering of grain and not any kind of animal meat. Now, I suspect the reason for this has to do with resolving a word translation problem that surfaces in the story of, of, of the dispute over an offering to God uh, between Cain and Abel. Right? which eventually led to Abel's death at the hand of Cain. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But for, for those of you who have it rendered in your Bibles, meat offering in chapter 2, just make it easy on yourselves. And cross out the word meat and write in grain. All right? Meat is, in the way we think of it today, is just plain inaccurate. All right? And it, it doesn't belong there. So, the micha is an offering of the choicest part of the grain, the semolina, which is then ground, turned into a dough, and then it's burned up on the altar. Now, the usual translation of fine flour is also not really on the mark. Okay? This is not flour that, in our way of thinking, has been real well sifted all right, to make it very fine. It doesn't even really mean the best. Rather, the offering is a flower made of the best part of the grain, all right, the semolina, all right. But the word minka also has a very interesting history, because it didn't always refer to this grain offering that we're now studying. Okay, in fact, minka is the word used back in Genesis four. Verses 3 through 5, in conjunction with that incident between Cain and Abel, when they each brought a sacrifice to God, but one was acceptable and one was not. You remember that story? Okay. The acceptable offering, the acceptable minka, was Abel's, but it was an animal. The unacceptable was Cain's, and it was plant life probably grain. Okay. But in both cases, back in Genesis, that offering was called minka. That's because, in its first usage, minka just meant sacrifice in general. It wasn't a specific kind. All right. um, and those of you that have been studying with me for a while, as we looked at words... You will notice that as we move along in the Bible, and as the eras begin to change, the meaning of words change. That happens with us all the time, doesn't it? We just discovered, we just discussed the word meal, for example, and how a long time ago you used the word meal was talking about to a ground up grain. That doesn't, if I said meal to my grandchildren, alright, they've got a fork and a knife ready to go, alright, but they're not thinking about ground up grain. Now, this whole thing is really kind of ironic. 
Alright, because the minka that was acceptable to God in Genesis was an animal, God refused the minka of grain. Now I suspect this is what threw the translators of the King James Version off track. And how could God refuse grain that except animal meat in Genesis and now in Leviticus, a minka is a grain offering. It has nothing in the world to do with animals. So they probably just called this the meat offering to solve the problem. Now, Instead, over a period of a couple of thousand years, we see the use of the word minka has transformed to the point it has nothing to do with animals, everything to do with grain. The, the history of this word, Hebrew word minka, fits very well with what the great sages and rabbis had to say about the meaning and the purpose of this grain offering that we're reading about. That is, it refers less to what is offered, to grain, and more to the purpose that it's offered. Okay. In other words, it's not so much about it being grain as it is that the purpose of this offering is meant as, as tribute, is meant as a gift to God. So, in both of the first two types of sacrifices that we're studying, the Olah and now the Minkah, part of the basic essence of those two offerings is that they're gifts to the Lord. But, but they are also required gifts. But isn't a required gift the nature of that word tribute? When we think of the term tribute, historically we think of a long line of conquered people right, who place gifts of appeasement at the, at, the, at the feet of a king. It's a sign of submission. They bring tribute to that conquering king. And that's closer to the sense that we're dealing with here in Leviticus for the purpose of the Minka sacrifice. Now, another little interesting aspect of the minka is that it eventually came to be offered primarily in the evening or the late afternoon. As a result, the word minka doubled as a term that indicated not only that it was a grain offering, it now started to refer to the time of day that it took place. If you study Jewish tradition, you'll find that the time of their late afternoon prayers is often called the time of minka or minka prayers. All right, meaning that these are ritual prayers given in the late afternoon. Well, unlike the ola, the bird offering, the minka, the grain offering, only offered a small portion of that grain to be burnt on the altar and the rest of it was held back for food. Recall that the Olah required that all of the meat from that animal was burned up to ashes. So the finely ground semolina and oil, olive oil, which were the primary ingredients for this sacrificial offering, could be mixed up in a number of different ways. And they could even be, it could even be offered cooked or uncooked. Okay. Leviticus specifically states that if it's cooked, the dough can be baked in an oven. It cooked on a griddle. It can even be cooked in a pan. And when the dough was baked in an oven, 
It could be accomplished in a couple of different ways with different outcomes. And in verse 4, we see that oil could be added to the dough, and this would produce a thick round cake. Now, the Hebrew term used here in Leviticus for this result is called challah. Right? And if you like to celebrate Sabbath, the traditional Jewish way, you'll find yourself purchasing a loaf of what is called challah bread. Although today, it's in the shape of a loaf. And this is where we first hear of this term, challah. And the other outcome for the dough baked in an oven is called rakik, which is a very thin, crispy wafer. And after the baking of rakik is accomplished, then the required olive oil is spread on top of it. In both cases, it has to be unleavened dough because nothing containing leaven, we, we read, is ever to be burnt up on the brazen altar. Can't ever be. Now, let's also not overlook that back in verse 2, God commands that this stuff called frankincense is to be added to the dough. We've heard of that before. All right? I mean, when we think of, we think of Jesus and his birth, that's one of those words that comes to mind. Frankincense. Because it was offered as a, as a gift. Because frankincense was expensive. And it was used to make a pleasing odor was to make a nice aroma. Right? Now, incense burning was a common practice in the Middle East, and it wasn't just used for religious ceremony. Okay? It was more often used to mask the pretty bad odors associated with farm life, um, and with not bathing particularly often. So, one might ask why frankincense would wind up being added to the dough. Because it's not really explained. They don't say do it for this reason. To the Middle Eastern mind of that day, explanation wouldn't have been necessary at all. They well knew what it is that I told you last week. That in every type of offering that was burned upon the altar, it was the smoke that was the primary important item. All smoke caused by a ritual to the Lord, had a certain quality of it of being like an incense. Why? Because to people of that era, God lived far away, way up high in the clouds and beyond. So the smoke rose up into the atmosphere and eventually reached God. And when he smelled that aroma, it was pleasing to him. Adding frankincense made the aroma all the more pleasing. And we're going to find in later sections of the Old Testament, as well as the New, by the way, analogies made between prayers that rise up to God and the smoke of burning incense that rises up to God. And they're compared. Okay? These analogies are to be taken quite literally. Now, salt, it says, was to be added to the dough. Salt was to be added to every type of grain offering because there were other types of offerings involving grain that we're we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But we find that both honey and yeast are prohibited. Let's look at these elements because all throughout the rest of the Bible, New Testament and Old, we're going to see references to yeast, leaven, honey, and salt. 
And the symbolism of these things has often been under, misunderstood and misused. First, let's get back uh, let's get back to the salt. Now, the use of salt had both practical and spiritual implications. Going back to Genesis, we find that salt was used as part of a covenant-making ceremony. And how all this began has been argued by scholars going back even before Jesus, yet general agreement has recently been reached as to the use and meaning of salt. And, and we're going to deal a little with some Hebrew phrases here to kind of get, it, get to the bottom line of this issue. In verse 13, we're told that you are to season every grain offering with salt. Do not omit from your grain offering, it says, the salt of the covenant. Actually, we're told that all sacrificial offerings are to be salted. And the Hebrew phrase for the salt of the covenant is malak berit eloeka. Okay? Malak is salt, berit's covenant, eloeka refers to God. Alright? It's, it's kind of a form of the word Elohim. Alright? And it is a phrase that is really kind of an idiom. It's kind of a Hebrew expression. Okay? It refers to a binding obligation to God. And one in which salt must be used in remembrance of that binding obligation. We call that binding obligation with God a covenant. So, why salt? Well, it appears the use of salt as both a component of making a treaty and breaking a treaty goes well back to before the time of Moses. We have records showing that often, if a treaty among two parties was broken, that the recommended consequence was that the offending party would have large volumes of salt sprinkled over their fields as a penalty, thereby making those, thereby making those fields unusable. Okay. We also see salt used in rituals involving hospitality to welcome guests. So the using of salt here it seems to be simply making use of a very well understood element of making agreements in use since time immemorial in the Middle East. The allegorical use of salt that we've tended to hear in sermons over our church and synagogue lifetimes don't seem to have too much basis in fact. All right, they don't connect real well with what the Bible actually says about it. Okay, we simply need to take this statement about salt in Leviticus at face value that God employs this ancient custom to help His people Israel understand this binding nature of His covenants with them, and it is also made clear that the use of salt in sacrifices is not optional. That is, from God's point of view, which is the one we should concern ourselves with, um, the use of salt is a sign that the worshiper agrees with God and intends on upholding God's covenants. So when we read in later chapters of the Bible, New Testament included, of the use of salt, either directly or as an illustration, it is meant to be taken as either an indication of a permanent and sacred covenant to which you have agreed to adhere 
Okay? Or it is used to indicate salt, and this is interesting, which has become waste salt. It's been used up, and so it serves no other purpose. Okay. How can salt get used up and therefore serve no other purpose? Well, the salt used in massive quantities at the bronze altar upon which the large chunks of meat from the sacrificial animal would be placed on was one place where salt was used. You see, one of the many practical uses of salt is, it, is that it is absorbent. All right. Salt would be spread on the chunks of sacrificial meat before they were placed on the altar fire in order to, ab- to absorb all the blood it could. Any residual blood was drawn out by the use of that salt. Then the salt was shaken off onto the ground. Then the meat was finally placed onto the altar. The same procedure was also required when people at home prepared meat to use for food. Blood from sacrificial animals was supposed to be drained completely from that animal, captured in a container and splashed on the sides of the altar. It was not to be burned up along with the meat. So the meat was to be drained, whether it was for sacrifice or for food, as much as possible of its blood. And this all goes back to one of the seven Noahide laws that prohibited the eating of blood. Let's remember, priests or worshippers with certain specified sacrifices could eat some of the uh, animal meat. So this meat had to be drained of its blood and they didn't really have rules of bounty paper towels yet. All right, So they used salt to absorb all that blood. And of course... There had to be mountains of salt that was used to, abs- uh, to absorb all that blood from the incredible number of animals that were sacrificed every day at that altar. Okay? And that waste salt had to be disposed of somehow or another. Okay? So after the Israelites entered Canaan, and many Israelites began living in cities and villages, they simply threw that blood-soaked salt, no longer fit for use, on pathways and on roadways. This fulfilled the command that whatever blood was not splashed on the brazen altar had to be poured out onto the ground like water. Okay? So this waste salt, polluted with blood, served this useful purpose of poisoning the ground to keep vegetation from growing on paths and roadways, along with following the command to pour out the waste blood onto the ground. Now let's discuss leavening, yeast. This is another of those topics from which a lot of preaching has been done, a lot of presuppositions spoken, Um, concerning the spiritual meaning of the prohibition of leaven in sacrifices and on household food during Passover, Pesach. The reality is the Bible really doesn't go into much depth as to the significance of it. The rather consistent statement that leaven represents sin isn't really outright said in the Bible. It's, it's It's a... Somewhere between a tradition and an educated guess. 
Um, the use of leaven in the Bible is all over the map. Okay, While leaven cannot be used in sacrifices that are burned up, it is used, interestingly, in other kinds of religious ceremonies, even including the twelve loaves of showbread that are placed inside of the tabernacle, near the veil, which separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And yeast was perfectly acceptable to be used in Hebrew cooking and baking, except on certain specified occasions. Now, the only real mention of why no leaven can be used has to do with the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread, and the Bible states it's because it's a remembrance of that day that Israel hurriedly left Egypt and so brought prepared but unleavened dough with them because there was no time to allow it to ferment and rise. Otherwise, its prohibition is a bit of a mystery. But understand that the prohibition of using leaven in some cases and not in others is not based in tradition. The the use of it or the non-use of it is not tradition. It is ordained in the Bible. Exactly why that is, is the issue. Now, as for this prohibition against using honey, the Hebrew word that is usually translated honey is devash. And it is thought that while devash can refer to honey, it really refers more to other sweetening agents. The most common of which, in biblical times, was date sugar or fruit nectar. It wasn't honey. In fact, there's no evidence at all that the use of beehives to collect honey was even used in the Bible days. The story of Samson finding a honeycomb in the bones of a, of a dead lion, that was really more the norm. Okay? That is, the finding of a hive and the honey it contained was purely luck. And it was a very happy event to find that. Um, bees would congregate in splits of rocks and in uh, crevices and uh, splits of trees and and skeletal remains of large animals. Uh, that was the more natural way. And so that's where honey would be found, but it was pure serendipity uh, to find honey, and it was greatly prized. So when we see the word honey in the Bible, don't get, thinking, don't get hung up thinking that it was meant as honey like from bees. Right? Except in the rarest of instances, devash, was simply referring to something that added a sweet taste to food, however that happened. Now, why then couldn't honey be used on the sacrifices? Well, one of the problems we have with the most ancient of biblical biblical commands like this one is, often there is simply no explanation attached. Um, So rather than be skeptical, we have to approach such rules with common sense. Statements that were simply common knowledge for the people of that day bore no need for explanation. A thousand years from now, historians are probably going to ask, why did Americans eat sandwiches for lunch? And they may not have a good answer. Because I can't think of a modern novel or a fast food advertisement that would bother to explain why eating sandwiches is appropriate. And what the cultural significance of eating sandwiches is all about. 
Okay? And what the history of sandwich eating is and whether there's anything symbolic about eating a sandwich. But I'll guarantee you a thousand years from now, those are the sorts of questions that will be asked. All right? And somebody will have a ready answer. Okay? We do it because we do it. It's just an unquestioned part of our culture that developed and has been adopted. And that's the way it was with many biblical commandments. And the prohibition against the use of honey or a sweetening substance is not explained. So you can bet it didn't require any explanation to the people of that age. They knew it. They knew why. Now, the great Middle Ages rabbi Maimonides offered an answer that does hold some water. And it is that in every other Middle Eastern culture known, in fact, honey was used. It was called for in their religious activities particularly in sacrifices to gods, because it was so rare and so valued. Therefore, the God of Israel's prohibition for the Israelites against the use of honey in sacrifices was to separate Israel's behavior and rituals from all others. Now, whether this is true or not, we'll just have to wonder. But I can tell you that as time goes on, more and more I see that So much of what God prohibits for his followers is merely because people who are not his tend to value it so much. And as we go about our walk with the Lord, we kind of need to factor that principle into our decision making. If the world really loves it, maybe we need to think twice about it. So to summarize, honey and leaven are not suitable by God's command for use on the sacrificial altar. Okay? But they are suitable as offerings set before God. That is, offerings that aren't burned up and therefore these prohibited substances don't wind up in the smoke that gets emitted up to God. Okay? So, the ritual of the grain offering the minkah went like this. First of all, the worshiper would prepare this dough. And then he could either cook it in one of the prescribed ways, or he could just leave it as a raw lump in a pan. And that product was next to be brought to the tabernacle, later the temple, the permanent tabernacle, if you would, and he would hand it to to one of the many attending priests. The priest would take just a handful of it, And he would throw that under the brazen altar where, of course, it would be consumed with fire. In fact, the handful the priest took was very small. The Hebrew word used in verse 2, which is usually translated as handful, is kometz. And the sense of this word is that it's not only a small portion, but a very small portion. Just a teensy, tiny bit. The remainder of that grain offering was then given to the priests to be used as their personal food, but they were required to eat of it only on the temple grounds. They couldn't take it home to Mama. They had to eat it there. Now, this, therefore, was what the Bible calls a sacred meal. In essence, they were dining in God's presence. Verse 3 says that this portion was given to Aaron and his sons and 
It was called Kodesh Kodeshim, a most holy portion. So only a tiny amount was put on the altar and the rest were given to the priests. But somehow, that tiny amount taken from this large clump of dough had this symbolic effect of making the whole amount, this entire clump of dough from which it was taken, from which would be kept for food to be used by the priest, that part that wasn't put on the altar, it made that holy somehow or another. Turn, if you would, quickly to Romans 11. I'll show you something. Turn to Romans 11. We'll be there just for a moment. Romans 11. We're going to look at verse oh, 13 and oh, a couple more after that. Starting in verse 13 of Romans 11. It says this. This is Paul speaking. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I may know the important, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now, if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, what did we just hear about? Depending on your Bible version, it'll say, now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. Others' versions say if the first piece of dough is holy, so is the whole lump. Things like that. Now, after studying this chapter, that makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Okay. Paul, of course, is referring to the grain offering, the minka. The challah is but the dough that has oil added and baked in an oven. Leviticus tells us that that kind of bread is called challah. He's using this example of challah, that is the grain offering for the sacrificial system, because it was perfectly understood by the Jews in the crowd. Right? They well understood the grain offering procedure and the meaning that offering up that tiny little portion of the dough on the altar transmitted its holiness to the whole lump, to the whole loaf, all right, that would be eaten by the worshiper and or the priest. Now, this is just one minor example of the value of studying Torah and the sacrificial system, because without it, how in the world can we even understand what Paul was typically talking about to the people, because very often he was putting everything in the terms of the sacrificial system or the law. Well, back in Leviticus 2, in verse 14, we're given a special use of the minka sacrifice. And it could be used during the harvest festival. That's the idea behind the word first fruits. That is, it, it is to be made from the first of the grain harvest. Now, this wasn't just a single season. This would be performed several times during the year. Right, for instance, when the barley became ripe, later when the wheat became ripe, 
Right? And when this grain offering was for a purpose of a first fruit celebration, it usually was not done in combination with the Olah, the burnt offering of an animal. In other words, when the reason for the grain offering was to commemorate the grain harvest, first fruits, it was a standalone sacrifice and not normally coupled with another kind. And in this case, rather than the grain being stripped of its semolina and then ground into flour and made into dough, the grains were simply fire-roasted, whole. The roasted whole grains then had olive oil and frankincense poured all in it. Right? And it was presented to the priest who then took a small amount and threw that on the altar fire. So in Leviticus, what is the meaning and the purpose of the minka, the grain offering? Really, we don't get too much help from the Bible on this. Okay? The most direct purpose for this offering is expressed in verse 2. It's a fragrant aroma to the Lord. That's the most direct statement about it. Okay? There is a direct link between the Olah, the burnt offering of an animal, and the Minka, the burnt offering of grain. And so much of it is expressed as being pleasurable to Yehovah, and the pleasure resides in that smoke. Now, thus far we've seen that the Minka is a gift to God. However, it's more along the lines of an involuntary gift, tribute, right? something ordained and expected by the all-powerful king. And it's supposed to bring, bring pleasure to God. And along with these is also the idea of the worshiper declaring his allegiance to Yehovah and this intent to obey him. Now, when you stand back a little bit and look at this from a broader view, we already see this bit of a pattern emerging. Okay? The Olah is designed to gain God's attention and to get him to look favorably upon the worshiper. In addition, the Olah maintains peace between the worshiper and Yehovah, and it's also an admission of the worshiper that he has a corrupt nature. Right? It requires a means of reconciliation with God. And once this is accomplished and the worshiper is put into good standing with God, then the grain offering is observed and it expresses thankfulness for God's provision at the same time acknowledging the worshiper's dedication to Jehovah. Now before we move on to chapter 3, which will be next time, let me point out something here that I think might be worthwhile to our understanding of sin, forgiveness, and atonement in general, and the concept of forgiveness of sins by means of Yeshua's sacrificial death on the cross. We often get these confusing theological debates on sin and forgiveness that brings us questions like this. Okay, so if Christ died once and for all for our sin, then why, on the other hand, does he tell us in his very own prayer model, the Lord's Prayer, that every time we pray, we're to ask the Father for forgiveness for our sins. After all, if these trespasses are already forgiven by the blood of Jesus, what are we doing when we ask him to forgive us for some newly committed sin or bringing up an old sin over and over again? Okay, I think the answer is highlighted by the purpose of the Olah and Minkra sacrifices. And remember 
this sacrificial system that we're studying was fully operational when Christ was alive and of course he would have participated in these things or he certainly not have, would not have been considered a great rabbi or even a good Jew. All right. We need to think of sin in a couple of planes. One is the sinful nature of mankind and the other is the sinful behavior of mankind. Okay. That is, due to Adam's fall, we are all saddled with this sinful nature. Okay. But even before that event, man had the capacity, we call it our will, to sin. But an occasion to exercise that will in disobedience didn't arrive for Adam and Eve until the Lord commanded them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. The Hebrew sages characterize this nature of men to do wrong as the yetzer hara, all right, or our evil inclinations that live side by side with our good inclinations. But many people with sinful natures can do an awfully good job of not sinning outwardly. They guard their behavior carefully. Not perfect, but pretty darn good. Okay. Now, I'm sure I'll draw some disagreement, but it seems to me that while our evil inclination is centered in our minds, our sinful nature is pretty much centered in our spirits and in our souls, depending on how one would define spirit and soul. That is, we either have a corrupt spirit in us or we have a holy spirit in us. Okay? We don't have a little bit of each or none at all. It's fully one or the other. Okay? We're born with a corrupt spirit and there's not a blooming thing we can do about it except to trust God and to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? If we do that, then we have our corrupt spirit replaced with a holy one and at that moment, our nature has changed. Yet, yet, that evil inclination that resides in our minds remains. And it haunts us until the day we die. Okay? Now, the sad fact is that for a variety of reasons that my good friend, Dr. Robert McGee, has thought about and taught about in depth, a saved person often goes right on living like that exchange of spirits never happened. Okay? And when that's the case, that saved person often continues sinful behaviors. That is, he commits sins. Yet again, that person's spirit and his nature is clean and holy. Okay? The concept of this strange conundrum that mankind lives out is introduced to us here in Leviticus. Because the Olah and to the degree of Minka, these sacrificial offerings are to atone for this inherent corruption within mankind that causes this tension between man and God. See, these two sacrifices, Olah and Minka, are not about atoning for sinful behaviors. You don't commit a sin and then go do an Olah. You don't commit a sin and then go do a Minka. It's not... Not the deal. 
These two offerings that we've been talking about now are not designed to atone for committing a specific violation of the law. Rather, they're about dealing with men's sinful nature. With men's corrupted spirit. Now, so far in the Levitical sacrificial system, we've not even encountered yet a sacrifice meant to deal with anybody's bad behavior. With anyone's disobedience. Thus far, the sacrifices have been purely about God's justice system dealing with our natures, which is reflected not in our behavior per se, but rather in the state of our spirits, which until Christ accomplished his work could only be one condition. Corrupted. So we have a sacrificial system being demonstrated here by which there are two issues concerning sin and atonement that have to be dealt with. First, our acceptability to God, the nature of which is contained in our spirits, and second, our trespasses, are sinful acts of lawless behavior against God. Two different things. When Messiah died, first and foremost, his sacrifice accomplished in a much more grand and complete manner the purpose of the Olah and the Minkah. His death and our faith in him made us acceptable to God. His death allows us to approach Jehovah. And we will remain acceptable to Yehovah regardless of our behavior at least until our behavior actually begins to reflect a heart that fully rejects God. Okay? And rejects His Son who is God. But our behavior does matter. Okay? God's watching our behavior. Obedience matters. God is cognizant of our obedience or lack of it to him. And when we do misbehave, when we are disobedient to him, we're to ask for forgiveness out of obedience. Okay? Not because we become unacceptable to him. Because of some bad behavior. This is why Christ tells us in the Lord's Prayer to ask forgiveness for our trespasses, our poor behavior, our disobediences to God's commands not for forgiveness of our corrupted natures because the Lord's prayer follow me here carefully the Lord's prayer is a prayer only for the believer who has a new and clean nature it's not for anybody else okay It's only for a believer who already has an acceptable nature before God. Thanks to the work of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the example and the shadow and the type of that particular aspect of God's justice system is what is given to us here in the first two chapters of Leviticus. And when we return from Israel, we will begin Leviticus chapter 3.